and welcome to Glad Tidings, the Athletics Everton Football Club podcast. It's me, Greg O'Keefe. As ever, I'm joined by our Everton correspondent, Paddy Boyland. And this week we've got a special guest, one of our colleagues down in London. It's Sarah Shepherd. Hello, Sarah. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Not too bad at all. Um, now, we've asked you to come on to discuss a piece that Paddy and I were just chatting about this morning. Actually, it was it was a really interesting read. It's something that we've, we've kind of focused on in an Everton sense recently as well assistant managers number twos and the pitfalls and challenges in them stepping out of the shadows and becoming number ones in their own right. Paddy, it was a really interesting read, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And, and obviously for, for those that have read it, they'll know that there's there's an Everton link here. Sarah speaks in the piece about Paul Clement, Carlo Ancelotti's former assistant at Real Madrid at PSG and the, the struggles he had adapting to being the number one. And there's this wonderful link. I won't spoil the piece for those that have not read it, but there's a wonderful comparison between Carlo's persona and why he succeeds as a manager and maybe the struggles Paul Clement has had. So hopefully hopefully I'm not spoiling too much there, but the, it, not only is it a great piece in its own right, but there's also yeah. that, that Everton link. And I think particularly pertinent at this moment in time because we've got two highly rated assistant managers of our own, both of whom are being kind of tipped to go on to to bigger and better things in quotation marks. No, absolutely. And so that was out April the 8th. Uh, you'll find it on the app or on the site. But Sarah, like I say, it, there's an Everton angle, there's a wider football angle. Mm. And you've spoken to a lot of different people in the game, um, including people at Rangers, people who've worked with, you know, as Paddy said, Ancelotti. And... I love the list at the end, which which was just a list of contradictions. It seems there's no straight formula, or it's seemingly really a magical formula to becoming, transitioning from a successful assistant to manager. There's so many factors involved, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. It's um, I I kind of put that list in just to illustrate how it, it can sound quite simple, but when you look at the reality of it and everything that's involved, it's actually a really complicated step to make and in football mm. a lot of the time the way that people do things is based on the way that it's always been done and that there's never a point where people kind of step back and say is this the best way or is there a better way to do this and I think someone in the comments actually said you know like it's amazing that there isn't you know a course that someone has to go on to to make that step mm. because you know if you look at it from a business point of view Often people have to do like further education, etc., to 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 make a step up in in a role. And sport is obviously a completely different world in some respects to to business, and that obviously doesn't happen. So when a an assistant or a coach steps up to become a manager, a lot of the time they're learning on the job. Um, yeah. And if they're doing that at the very top level, it's it's an extremely hostile, um, <laughs> you know, and pressured environment to to do it in. Yeah, I mean, we've we've seen it at Everton, haven't we? Paddy with sort of you know, Alan Irvine, who was David Moyes' highly respected and well thought of assistant, and when he kind of set out on his own, you know, at West Brom, and uh, it, it just didn't ever seem to happen. And it certainly seems that more often, um, and and there's so many examples in your in Sarah's piece, more often it doesn't it doesn't work really. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the example that immediately sprung to my mind, to be honest. So long, for so long, Alan Irvine was a really, really good, stable number number two for David Moyes. And obviously, latterly, there was there was Steve Round as well. I don't think mm. either of those guys have ever really kind of gone out and, and cut their own teeth. No, Irvine tried, but they've not had that experience 
as a number one for any length of time and certainly haven't succeeded when they've when they've done so. But there's a, a long list. We talk about long lists in the piece, a long list of managers as well that that, that have or, or assistant managers that haven't been able to go on to to become a manager in their own right. People like Rennie Moulin staying at, at Manchester United, who Sarah mentions briefly as well. But I thought uh, bringing in another Everton hook here, Sarah, you open the piece obviously with, with a reference to Mikel Arteta and you almost say how quickly he was able to establish that air of authority um, about his, his his premiership at, at Arsenal. Mm. He's obviously been somebody that certainly Manchester City fans have become accustomed to seeing behind Pep Guardiola. He was, he was kind of packaged maybe unfairly as just Pep's assistant. What do you think he's been able to do? What, what is it inherently about somebody like Arteta um, that has, has meant that he's been able to make an easier transition to management than some of those guys we've just mentioned? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think if you talk to a lot of the players who played with him, they would say they're not surprised at all that he's been able to step up into management seemingly quite seamlessly. Obviously, it's really very early days um, in his first job. So things could still change. But, you know, they talk about a character who, when they played with him, was not a loner, but he wasn't, you know, the kind of guy to kind of get involved with the the, the bants in the dressing room, etc. He was his own person. Um, and he always kind of, you know, they respected that. And he had an air of authority even then as a player. Um, so I think he's been able to kind of come into the club and, and keep that air about him and the players had like an immediate respect for him not only because of what he's achieved as a player but you know his experiences as a coach and I think he's he's able to find that balance between relating very well to the players and communicating exceptionally well but maintaining the kind of distance that that Mm. you need to be an authority figure. It's interesting that because you you often associate with with assistants it might be a little bit cliche but there's the sort of avuncular player's friend, the good cop to the bad cop of the manager. And I know that could be the case sometimes with Moyes and Irvine and so many mm. of them. And, you know, what I found fascinating was when you spoke about Clement and, and work with Ancelotti, um, you spoke to some people at Swansea who'd worked with him and they said as a coach, he was fantastic. But remind us what they were saying about they felt he lacked. Oh, there are a couple of people that, that we spoke to and the kind of common theme was... was um it was lacking that that authority that I mentioned and, and perhaps the kind of strength in his own beliefs. So he would change yeah. his ideas based on results, which players are very quick to recognise. Um, yeah. And it makes them question the manager as well, um, if a manager is seemingly questioning himself. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was that was one of the key things. Like, so I think someone, the quote from someone was just, he's, he's just not strong enough. Um, and I... I, I do feel in some ways for Paul Clement because he's everybody you speak to in the game without exception talks about how brilliant a coach he is. Um, and it's obvious that when he'd had the experiences that he'd had alongside Ancelotti, he was going to want to try and, and make that step. He's had three goes it and, and he would, he would very much argue that there have been mitigating circumstances at each mm. one. Um, and I can see his point of view. He, they've, none of them have been easy jobs, but, I wonder how many chances, you know, he's going to get and and how many chances he will need before, you know, he finds a place where he can have success as a manager. And and when do you kind of stand back and go, okay, maybe this is not where my strengths are. Maybe my strengths are on the training pitch as as a coach, as a number two. But I'm not sure if he's ready to kind of admit that yet. 
Just flipping out on its head a little bit, Sarah, we, we've spoken a lot about assistant coaches, but also there's the insight into to Ancelotti himself as well. And I just wonder almost kind of from what we've seen of, of the way these kind of managerial double acts work, if somebody like Carlo and his kind of calm statesman-like approach, I wonder if it almost necessitates a counterbalance on the on the on the rest of the coaching staff guys that are able to f- effectively. I know I know Carlo will go in and occasionally kind of paint the walls with his with, with his language and with his with his shouting, but there are guys in in the Everton dressing room now that won't be shy in coming forward in that regard. People like Duncan Ferguson. Do you, do you personally feel that that's kind of an important thing to have some? particularly knowing what you do about Ancelotti to have somebody on his staff that can maybe take a slightly different approach a less statesman-like approach to um to dealing with players yeah definitely I, th- I think um I think it was Michael Bill who kind of talked about how the the balance in a coaching team is so important and that if when you're putting together your coaching team it's really important that you look for people who have strengths in other areas to you so that you know the things that you're maybe not so good at, or you don't do much of. This, your the rest of your team do do, um, and obviously with Carlo, that everyone that you kind of speak to about the way that he manages is he likes to take a step back. You know during the early part of the week, and then he will kind of appear a few days before a game, and and then start having an impact. Um, but he obviously really trusts the people that he works with to do that. You have to, um, and I think probably the people that he works with really appreciate that because they're given the responsibilities. Um, but yeah, I, I, I can see that he would need someone uh, of a different character to him, you know, to kind of, because you couldn't just have a sort of, I don't know, I don't, I'm not calling him monotone, but you know, you'd need that bit of energy, wouldn't you? I think he seems quite a laid back character for the majority of the time. I suppose if if, you, if you're not familiar, um, Sarah previously worked at Coach's Voice, so it was kind of, you would have interviewed a lot of people in and around the sort of coaches, managerial side of the game. What did you make of, or what do you make of, of Carlo's um, appointment of Davide, his son, as his assistant at his previous clubs and again at Everton? It's something that when Paddy and I looked into it for our piece, we we found a lot of positivity around mm. Davide's role, but there was also an acknowledgement that it brought with it initial fears of nepotism and whether he's good enough. And I think what what we encountered was the, the sort of feeling that he's dispelled them very quickly and continues to do so. But but what do you make of that dynamic? Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm not sure how many kind of examples we've seen of that a father and son yeah, coaching yeah. team. Um, and Jose had his son around him, but he wasn't kind of in that senior position, was he? Um, yeah. So yeah, it is fascinating, and and that accusation of nepotism. David will be, you know, extremely aware that that will follow him around for as long as, <laughs> as long as, especially as long as he's working alongside his father. Hmm. Um, but I was actually having an interesting, this is a bit off topic, but I was having an interesting conversation um, this morning with Frank Smith uh, in the boxing world, who is Eddie Hearn's number two. Yeah. And he was talking about Eddie Hearn, obviously, when he first came into the business, was very much seen as Barry Hearn's son and, you know, <laughs> the accusations were, well, he's he's just got that gig because he's Barry Hearn's son. And he was saying how actually that, uh, the awareness of that has made Eddie, you know, one of the hardest workers he's ever met. Um, so I think That's when people are in that situation, they're automatically, you know, if, if they're intelligent enough to be aware of it, which he obviously is, they're automatically working a lot harder than anybody else <laughs> generally because they want to prove themselves to be their own their own person. 
I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if that goes for David as well. Yeah, I, th- I think actually it, it's funny you say that because quite a lot of the people we've spoken to about David have effectively said the same thing. I either he's aware that this moniker, this title follows him around and that he's almost got to do something even more special to kind of yeah. step out of his father's limelight even temporarily. But what we've got now is a situation in which given we've spoken to a variety of different people about both Davide and, and Duncan and we're getting a lot of, I would say, a lot of positive stuff back on the whole about, about those two figures. The inevitable question is, can either of them step up and one day go on and be a manager in, in their own right? I mean, for those that haven't read the piece, what would you say are the main hurdles? What are the main things that an assistant manager has to overcome? What are the main differences if you want to be a manager? One one of the, the key things that everybody said was about that having that relationship with a player, which as a coach and an assistant, you can you can get really close to the players. You know, you're essentially um, a conduit between the dressing room and the manager. So you're the one that the players will come to and tell, talk to, you know, before they'll go to the manager. But the challenge is when you step up to become a manager that you can't really have that same relationship. You have to have that bit of distance. Um, you still have to be able to communicate with the players very well um, and keep that a part of that relationship but you can't be you can't be you know the the person that you were to them before and um, so that's one of the key things um another one is is the personality side of things which sounds crazy because you you know if you're not born with them or you haven't developed through your the rest of your career this kind of personality or charisma um that people talk about charisma a lot with regards to Angelotti and some people they just don't have it for whatever reason. Um, that was one of the the kind of things held at, at Paul Clement was that he just doesn't have this this charisma. Um, you know, this when he when he, someone walks into a room, everybody stops talking to listen. You know, that's something that people say about Carlo a lot. Um, and some some people don't have that. Um, and that you know, how do you get it <laughs> if you don't have it? That's that's it's not something you can kind of read in a book and. I don't think anyway, because if you're putting something on that's not your natural personality, that's also not a great a great start. And players can generally see that, see through that as well. And it's also, I think, when you're an assistant manager or a coach, you're very involved, generally very involved in the coaching in the day to day. And as a manager, you you can't. But you've got so many other things to think about that you generally can't be as involved. So you have to be able to stay, take a step back in that way, while still having an overall control over what's going on in the training pitch. Um, so those are generally the biggest challenges. And, you know, they're, they're quite difficult things to manage, I think. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, sometimes it feels if perhaps they can't win. I remember um, one of the charges levelled against Sam Allardyce at Everton was behind the scenes was that he never seemed to be on the training ground. And, you know, his, his tenure didn't work at Everton for a variety of reasons. And, but what I've found from your piece is that, you know, the more you, you, you think about it, there are legitimate reasons why managers aren't always on the training line, like you said with Carlo Ancelotti, and it's just such a fine balance. I always remember with the, with a laugh, the impossible job, you know, the documentary about the 94 mm. England qualifying campaign with Phil Neal, just copying everything Graham Taylor would say. <laughs> you know, you're there to be an ally to the manager and you're there to be his kind of trusted companion and, and back him up, but at the same time, you can't be too, you know, oh, it's just, uh, it's a fascinating dynamic and, uh, I hope Everton is successful. I definitely think, uh, before we let you go, Sarah, you, you, what, what did you make of Duncan Ferguson's interim period in charge and, and now his kind of 
his dynamic in that sort of trio uh, of of coaches at Everton now be you know behind Ancelotti. Yeah, it was it's really interesting because he had such an instant impact, um, and it was a really impressive, <laughs> really impressive yeah. tenure. But I didn't get the impression that he wanted the top job. Was that kind of common knowledge? That he didn't particularly want it, or was it? Yeah, I yeah. think he was. He yeah, basically it was. said it. It feels like it's too soon. Yeah. Oh, so he's he's kind of considering it maybe later in his career, is he? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know that was kind of a, a good a good start, and he's clearly got that air of authority about him. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure players are going to argue with him. Um, you know whether <laughs> whether he's got everything else. I mean, I think that was too short and intense a period to really be able to tell um, if he can manage a team long term. Um, he can obviously have a really big impact and the players I would respect him. That it was I can't remember who it was that he dragged off. Oh, it was Moyes Keane against Moise Keane. Uh, against Manchester United, yeah. Yeah. The management of that situation I wasn't too sure about um whether, you know, that was necessary and whether that yeah. was the best way of dealing with that situation, um, how that would have gone down with the player and also with other players who've seen that. Um, mm. So that was something that kind of put question marks in my head. But again, that that's a could be part of just a learning experience. Um, maybe the next time he's in that kind of situation, he would make a different decision. I think so, yeah. I think he, he kind of even alluded to, to that as much. Well, yeah. this has certainly been a learning experience for us. We've uh, really enjoyed chatting and thanks so much for talking through the piece. It was a really great read. If you can, don't forget to check it out. Uh, it was on the site, like I say, April the 8th. Um, and it's... It's just a fascinating insight into why it's so rare that a number two becomes a successful manager with loads of loads of good voices. So, Sarah, thanks very much. Thanks a lot for having me on. Appreciate it, guys. Cheers, Sarah. Cheers. Harry sponsors Glad Tidings, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory, and now, by taking less profit... Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Uh, Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five blade brands. And Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. There's weighted ergonomic handle, five precision engineered blades, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. As a listener of Glad Tidings, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for $3.95. Just go to harrys.com forward slash Glad Tidings right now. That's Harry's, H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com forward slash Glad Tidings, G-W-L-A-D Tidings. That's Harry's dot com forward slash Glad Tidings. And listen, just because we're in lockdown doesn't mean you haven't got to have a shave. Get up, <laughs> do your best. Paddy, that's like me and you, isn't it? Kind of trying to keep uh, keep discipline in shape, not not let ourselves get too feral in the, uh, in the lockdown. Any, anything that will help <laughs> this moment of time. I'll take, I'll take anything that people um, can throw at me with regards to shaving, hair products, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the, the unkempt looks being perfected wonderfully over this uh, lockdown period. Yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting, then, Paddy, what Sarah was saying about the um, how Duncan was kind of very much learning on the job there. But um, in, our, in our piece, you know, we, we sort of tried to drill down into how that trio were working and it was it was interesting wasn't it because talking about like who takes coach who takes sessions and stuff like that um it seems to be working and and they've got very defined roles at the moment haven't they yeah and i I think one of the interesting things for me is that before ancelotti joined quite a lot of the stuff we'd heard about his time at napoli 
and and also Bayern Munich to a lesser extent was quite negative with regards to his coaching style on the training ground. So he kind of he delegate maybe some of the players, particularly at Bayern Munich, the players were used to such rigid instruction that the extra freedom that somebody like Ancelotti gives them didn't always go and go down well. And I believe players, our, our colleague Rafa Honigstein's spoken to me before about this, the way that players would almost organise their own sessions to overcome what they perceived to be shortcomings in, in the training that Anche- Ancelotti and his staff were giving them. But everything, I don't know about you, but everything I've had when I've spoken to, to players or I've spoken to people close to players, people at Everton, about Ancelotti, everybody comments on, first of all, how tough the training is, but also how kind of meticulous it is and how enjoyable. And I think we'd got to a stage with Marco Silva where Silva was full of ideas and he was full of theory. But so much of it kind of saturated the players. I remember you'd spoken to somebody, hadn't you? Who effectively said, there's a lot of set-piece instruction here and a lot of drilling down of information. And sometimes what the players need to do is actually to take a breather and to, to do something different and not to focus on the theory. They're not sitting a test, for example. They're just trying to learn new things. Um, and, and I think in that sense, Ancelotti's regime has been a bit of a breath of fresh air we we know they've had a an impact on the on the atmosphere at the training ground and that general staff across the board long-standing staff appear much happier with the, this current regime um but lots of people like we say have commented on how and, and, and players and, and and people close to those players have commented on how good the training is one person suggested to me that the person that takes a lot of um a lot of the plaudits for this given what Sarah said, is Davide himself, Davide Ancelotti. He's the one that organises training with Carlo. Duncan chips in as well. Um, and that between them, the, the pair function pretty well. Obviously, we know that Carlo is... We know we know what Carlo's like. We know that he's gentlemanly and he, he, he likes to kind of manage the play as well. He likes to be close to his players without being too close. I think Davide it gets, gets into the nitty-gritty of training sessions. Duncan does as well. And obviously, I think Carlo has spoken. You know, he spoke when we first met him um, at Everton uh, in, in that press conference uh, back in December about the need to have somebody on the coaching staff that has a connection to the club. And I think that's where Duncan obviously comes in. Um, he adds a, a bit of extra gravitas locally. He knows what the fans want. Got that fire in his belly, that passion that we all know. And I think that smooths the circle off really nicely from... Uh, a coaching perspective, I and mean, we we touched on it there with Sarah. You need you co- among your coaching staff, you need a, a varied skill set. And I don't know about you, but I ju- I just feel as though with Carlo, with Davide, and with Duncan, Everton have kind of got a lot of those aspects ticked off. A, a lot of it makes sense, at least in my opinion. Yeah, and you know, even sort of the importance of communication with Davide speaking so many languages yeah. and being able to to really kind of reach out every nationality almost in, in the squad. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Well, another nationality that he may well be working with further with is Brazilian because Everton have been strongly linked today with the defender from Lille, Gabriel. Uh, I won't try and pronounce his full name, but um, <laughs> he, he's a player that, that we've, you know, we, we've spoken of in previous pieces and, yeah, I know it's um, it's it's no it's no secret that Everton have been very interested in Pad. You you've written that yourself recently. Um, yeah. yeah, I know when we chat about it, you're quite excited at the prospect of, of him joining Everton, aren't you? You know, he, he's someone who's really caught your eye. Yeah, I mean, we've we've known um, about interest in 
Everton's interest in Gabriel for a good while. We we know obviously that Everton have got a quite a rigorous scouting network in France, as it happens, um, and uh, particularly in that kind of northern part of France. So Gabriel's at Lille, and they've they've scouted him extensively. They've liked what they've seen, and one of the main briefs here is to sign a centre back that's about to come into his prime. That's making waves in one of Europe's top five leagues, which which League One obviously is. But also, I think it's really important that the option is a left-sided centre back. That's something that Everton have identified: left-sided kind of statuesque player that can stride out from the back with the ball, comfortable in possession, playing through the lines. And from what I've seen and from what I've heard of Gabriel, there's an awful lot to admire about him, given his kind of his, his tender years. He's only twenty-three. Um, but has been one of the best, one of the standout centre-backs in the French League this season. It is only really this season when he's truly started to make his mark because I think last year uh, Lille had Adama Sumaro, who's another name that Everton had been linked with in the past. He's he's moved on to pastures new, as it happens, and that's just opened the door for Gabriel to kind of really come through and, and shine. It's, it's a securitous route to the top. He's played in a variety of different leagues and, and obviously came from Brazil originally. But he's he's definitely one that's featured on the radar, not only of Everton and, and interested Everton scouts, but he's also interested scouts across Europe and, and certainly in France as well. Given everything we know about him, I think it would be it'd be a, it'd be a huge boost for Everton to get this one over the line, and and obviously the reports out today suggest that um, certainly we're moving towards that. It, uh, that's no surprise to us, given what we've heard about how much Everton like him, and how that how they were prepared almost to to kind of back that up in the transfer market. And we know that Everton have have felt for quite a while now, certainly since the summer, that they've been one short at, at, at centre back. That would be a great start to the business um, whenever the transfer window does open, obviously. Um, and it would almost, if they were to get that one over the line early, it would almost allow them to prioritise what I think is the problem issue in this current side at the moment when you look through it, which is which is central midfield. I think that there's an, there's an urgent need for, for more energy, as, as Carlos put it, in, in the centre. And there's also, of course, the desire to recruit somebody out on the right to almost dovetail with Walcott, maybe add a few more goals um, and break the lines going going the other way. So I think it's quite I think it's quite exciting. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll, maybe we'll look back on this moment <laughs> in a year's time. Hmm. And uh, Gabriel's been a huge flop. Hopefully not, but maybe we'll look back on it and everyone will be able to laugh at how bad this opinion was. Sometimes football um, <laughs> comes back to bite you in that particular way. But uh, from from what I've seen and from what I've heard of him, from people that are whose opinions I respect, um, Gabriel is a very highly rated young defender who, sh- who should be a, a decent addition to what Everton have already. Yeah, I don't know about just signing Lille's defender. I think we should sign Lille's, Lille's uh, scouting staff. I mean, Eden Hazard is yeah. just a guy. They've had some top players o- o- over the piece and... Uh, well, one, one top player who, who is, is on the Everton section um, just before we round up is uh, a former top player and now hoping to become a top coach over in the USL, which is the second division of the US soccer. Because um, you've got to say soccer, haven't you, when you, when you start talking about <laughs> football over there. Is Landon Donovan. Um, you know, he's, he needs no instruction to Vertonians, remembered extremely fondly. And I chatted to him. Uh, it would have been last week about uh, his time over two long periods at Everton and uh, his memories of coming over in January a couple of times, just uh, 2012 and then um, a couple of years later to help uh, David Moyes' side. He always used to come at uh, 
points in which Everton's Moises teams often would, would have a average first half of the season and a, a very very impressive sort of second part of the season and he was in those two seasons memorably a key part of boosting the, uh, the the side and getting them into the European qualification spots and he spoke just so passionately about how much he, he loved his time there and you know why he was so desperate to sign permanently but it didn't happen and Really interesting for me, for me anyway, about uh, his breakdown of his teammates at that time and yeah. the impressions they made on him. What, what were the opinions? I mean, for anybody that's not read the piece, what what were the the most interesting opinions he had on um, on his teammates? I mean, I I actually really enjoyed the description of Marouane Fellaini. Yeah, same. That was to me that kind of stood out most because I think Fellaini, you know, albeit he, he got a big move to United and. He, he was an important figure for, for the Belgian national team. He, he still sounds, there's a little bit of a snobbery about Marouane Fellaini in football yeah. sometimes. And, and, you I know, agree. And Donovan um, underlined that really when he, when he was discussing how like uh, he doesn't look elegant sometimes and he, he doesn't look smooth and silky, which is, yeah, that's, that's true. He's a little bit ungainly and he's all angled, but he was so important. And he was saying how like they would post the running stats after every game and Fellaini was always top. And I loved his way of describing how basically, you know, he, he was a non-stop, you know, absolute engine. Like the ball would be from the kickoff from, from the opposition goal kick would come towards Everton and Fellaini would come and sit on Heitinger or Jags's shoulders and win the header. And then Everton would, would be start, you know, building the phases of play and working the ball down into the opposing box. And invariably it'd be Fellaini who'd won the, you know, start the move and then he would be getting on the end of crosses. And he was... Um, I think you agree. I think you're on board the Fellaini fan, fan club with me, aren't you? He was he was often underrated, really. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously Everton had signed him after he impressed so much for for Standard Liège against yeah. Liverpool in in a Champions League qualifier, as it was. That's right. Yeah. In those games, he was a defensive midfielder. But if you think about the different roles he played at Everton, he definitely played as a defensive midfielder when he when he started out. He went further forward as just a conventional central midfielder. He played in as attacking midfielder. Almost. I mean, this was before the time of the false nines, really. But I remember him effectively leading the line at times when Everton was short and needed options up there. And I've I've got a, quite a lot of fun memories about Fellaini. Everton signed him for about 15 million, sold him on for cl- just under 30, 28 million as it was. So they made a big profit. He contributed massively to the team. Like we say, could play in, in a variety of different roles. And one of the games that really stands out for me, I'm sure we'll all have our own Fellaini memories, but the game that stands out for me was the match where he played further forward against Manchester United at the start of the season. It was a night game. I don't know if it was a Friday night. Um, It was a night game against Alex Ferguson's Man United. Michael Carrick filled in at centre-back and um, Fellaini just tortured him for the whole game. He was just, he was absolutely outstanding that night in in that role slightly further forward, bullying him. And I think the tendency with Fellaini is to look at his physical attributes and how ungainly he is, is, as as you put it, quite quite aptly. And I think the tendency is to forget all the other things. I mean, one of the things for me was, of course, how much ground he covered and how well he finished, how good he was in the air. But do you remember the way he used to kind of, he'd, he'd jump in the air and he'd almost cushion the ball on his chest. Yeah. And he'd be able to trap everything instantly. He was fantastic yeah. at kind of controlling the ball and at awkward angles, holding players off at the, at the same time. And in that game against Manchester United, he did, he did all that. He, he hit the woodwork a number of times and scored a goal in front of me at the Gladys Street um, in a night game to just kind of completely like Goodison up 
fantastic, fantastic atmosphere. So, I mean, it, I think it's great, actually, that we, we, we speak about that period and we get the likes of, say, a Landon Donovan on. We've had Leon Osman on the pod recently as well, of course. And we've gone through a lot of those names and given them an awful lot of praise. So so if you think about it, we've we've spoken about Jags, we've spoken about Leighton and Leighton Baines and Seamus Coleman. We've mentioned the Aussie himself and how, how underrated he was. Tim Cahill, Mikel Arteta, Stephen Pienaar, Louis Sahar, all these guys, Yakubu, who who have had adulation. The one we sometimes forget, the one that we almost sweep under the carpet a little bit is, is Marouane Fellaini himself, who it was a very, very good buy for Everton. Um so so it was good to see that, but but I enjoyed the I enjoyed the descriptions of just about all the other players and and more than anything, um the attitude of the squad as a whole, which is which is something players come back to time and time again. It seemed like Donovan understood the from your piece, I don't know if if if, if this come, came across to you as well. It felt as though Donovan completely got Everton Football Club as an entity at that time. But yeah. then also um, the players and the squad and the wider squad did as well. And they kind of, they took him to heart. It was just a shame that he didn't uh, sign permanently, as you say. Yeah, no, I, I must add, I didn't write this, but I loved the headline on the piece. It was just like, run, tackle and fight, which was Donovan's summary of um, the advice <laughs> given to him when he joined Everton. Run, tackle, and fight, and and, uh, and the fans will take you on board. Well, yeah, to check that out, and um, again, the, the piece that, that Paddy and I did over uh, the assistants, um, you know, it was fascinating pulling that together. And um, if you haven't yet given that a read, by all means, do you can get that. Uh, that was the week before last on on oh, how you put, be... put me on the spot there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah we're, I think we're it was the week before last in, in isolation. Anyway, so yeah, that's all on the site. And look, the football season may still be on hold. Goodness knows how long for. But the Athletic's still home to 400 of the best sports writers out there. And in these really strange and uncertain times, we're still working hard to tell unique and engaging and informative stories. Um, we'll keep you connected to the team sport that we all love. Sign up now for a 90-day free trial and you can see for yourself. Um, it's a really good offer. Uh, just go to theathletic.com forward slash Everton pod. That's theathletic, all one word, dot com forward slash Everton pod. That's us. And you'll get a 90 day free trial. Mm-hmm. 